Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Save big money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast against shame. I hope you're well. I'm actually all right and I'm very excited about today's episode because I have one of my favourite humans, Travis Alabanza, on the pod teaching me so much with the most beautiful tones and patience in their voice. I love Travis. I've learned so much from them since our first ever time meeting in which I just walked away from this, I think it was like a Zoom chat that we were doing, a round table around transphobia in the United Kingdom. And I remember singling out Travis and just thinking, fucking hell, I have to watch what this person's going to do because I think they're going to be a really, really important voice for the next generation. And seeing the way that they've gone on to thrive since then has proven me completely right. I have learned a lot from Travis, not just around trans issues and things about transphobia, but also around the intersections of so many different issues and trans issues, and a lot about being non-binary. In this episode, we both discuss the difficulty in being such a visible figure in the trans and non-binary community and dealing with the British press. We discuss Travis's recent journey in deciding whether to transition or not, and where that journey came from. We discuss that respect goes deeper than pronouns and what we should really be looking for and expecting from different communities. And we discuss their wonderful mother, an exemplary mother, and what an accepting childhood looks like. The episode is so open, it's so refreshing, it's so hyper-tolerant of other people's points of view, within reason, of course. But it shows you a way to engage in this incredibly troubling and tense discourse in which people's human fucking rights are being debated as if that is even debatable. But Travis affords us the language, the tone, and the product of their years of hard work in order to help us communicate with others as to why these issues are so important and how if we were to allow trans and gender fluid people to just be free, we could all be fucking free. And so I hope you enjoy this refreshing chat between two people who really love and respect each other. And I hope you follow Travis in everything they do. This is the excellent, excellent Travis Alabanza. Travis Alabanza, welcome to Ai Wei. How are you? I'm so good. I'm excited to be on the podcast. I'm finally on a podcast that my boyfriend listens to all the time. So I'm winning <laughs> I'm winning points. I'm winning points. All right, we will not let your boyfriend down. <laughs> uh, how have you been, my darling? I'm good. I'm all right. I just got back from like a sweaty airport. So I'm giving that vibe, but I've been advised that it's glowy, not sweaty. So that's all no, we're going No, you with. look... Gorgeous. I mean, truly, truly gorgeous. So I would never have known that you were ever traveling. How are you doing? I'm good. Have you been somewhere exciting? I was in Amsterdam, um, oh, which yeah. is really nice. Um, but I was only there for like 24 hours. So less cool to do the like normal Amsterdam activities. You know, I was very 100%. behaved. I was very well behaved for Amsterdam. I once went on like a small tour with Snoop Dogg when I was 24. And we ended up in Amsterdam on that Wait. tour. No, you, know, I know, I know, you, I know. you can't just drop no, that. No, I'm aware. I'm aware. <laughs> I don't think I've ever spoken about it publicly other than when I was actually doing it. But I interviewed him once and I made him 
these clogs that had boobs on them. I like we'd carved carved out these clogs that had boobs on them. Like I was on T four, which is like a comedy interview right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, channel, and I gave him them, and I called them Snoop clogs. And uh, he just loved these breasted clogs that I'd given him. And then he was like, "You're funny. You're coming on the tour to interview me in all these different Wait, countries." Stop. Yeah. He didn't try and bang me or anything. Like I, had, I, it was, it was just completely pure. It was like a weird comedy thing. Oh my god! Sorry. Anyway, no. I'm like, I feel like there's going to be a pause where everyone now pauses the podcast and Google's like T four. Snoop clocks. Snoop clocks. Snoop clocks. Now I've been thinking about you a lot lately because we've kind of known each other for a few years now online more than. Uh, in the human flesh and uh, we've done stuff together before and we've kind of built up this lovely digital friendship. But in that time, I have watched you from going from relatively unknown and, and an activist that I love and who I, I learned so much from, but to becoming this big voice now in, in multiple intersecting communities and you have a book coming out really soon and you are a writer for all of the biggest publications in Europe. You're becoming such a known international voice. Are you okay? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) the laugh kind of suggests no. You know what? I actually am okay because it feels like, I feel like you, it feels slower than it probably looks from the outside and it feels like um I don't know I I don't pay attention as much to like other things as maybe people assume I do and I really like the stuff that I do so I think when you enjoy it you just focus on the stuff you enjoy um and you know I I did it all backwards in the sense that before I really had the talent thing happening I had all the, you know, I was trending worldwide in the press for horrible transphobic things when I was like 20 years old. So because it happened backwards, I feel like... Transphobic things happening towards you. Yes. yes. Yeah, I was, because I got kicked I didn't out. want anyone to get the wrong end of the stick and think oh. that you were a massive transphobe if this is their first time meeting Yeah, you. it was completely backwards. I was a transphobe in 2017. <laughs> and I've now came out as trans, which is tends to be the way, no. Exactly. I, um, so I feel like... Any attention I get now for my art feels small in comparison to when I first received a lot of attention. Um, so it feels easy compared to that. So I'm doing okay. I mean, okay. I'm in the middle of press, which I mean, I'm sure you know more than me. is like a weird sense of gratitude and also tired and also sick of your own voice. Um, yeah, you become sick of yourself and you become sick of uh, talking about yourself. And then the weird thing is that when you see your uh, friends they all would presume because you've got all this stuff going on that you want to talk about all of it with them. But really, you just want to know what's going on with your friends' lives. Yeah. You want to know how the bumhole bleaching is going. You want to know yeah. all the, you want to know about all the nooks and crannies of their lives. You don't want to talk about yourself anymore. Can't. But here we are for the next hour. You're well, all mine and I'm just going to grill you about yourself. Well, you did the perfect segue because now I'm just going to grill you about Snoop Dogg. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me, tell me about your journey with your mental health, given that this is a mental health podcast. Do you mind talking to me a little bit uh, about that? Of course. I think I haven't probably thought about it enough recently. I mean, I got a therapist like six years ago after, I think I didn't really think about my mental health or like, even though I realised I was dealing with mental health issues now in retrospect, I don't think I had the ability to think about it until I was like, To be honest, there was a big moment when suddenly you wake up and all the papers are talking about you and you're trending on Twitter for four days and there's photos of you in in the press. Can you talk a bit about this? Because some people won't have been aware of this. So in 2017, I was kicked out of a changing room in Topshop, um, which I always laugh. Now Topshop doesn't exist and I still do so long. Um, (laughs) But... I was kicked out of a women's changing room in Topshop. And then the next day, um, the papers lied and said that I was the reason why Topshop changed their policy to gender-neutral changing rooms. Um, but I, that wasn't the case. It had been gender-neutral for nine months. I think I was just quoting policy that had already changed. And it was happening at the same time as, like, transphobic press was starting to kick up in the UK. And so they really used that story as a way to kind of... Um, 
used me, I guess, to say that trans people were dangerous. And it was kind of one of the first big articles in the Sunday Times um, that then became the regular transphobic slot. So Janice Turner, who was quite a famous journalist, wrote a now pretty famous article called Children Sacrificed to Appease the Trans Lobby. And it was a big photo of my face on it. Um, and I had just turned 20. <laughs> so it was like, and I was, you know, I was known in queer spaces. I was performing in, you know, theater shows, but I had nowhere, you know, I woke up to 40,000 more followers that day. Um, and I was enjoying my life of just being a kind of queer actor and performer in the club scene. And suddenly I was kind of made into this mouthpiece for this issue that I wasn't really, um, that invested in, you know, I was just trying to get, I was actually invited to Topshop to get an outfit for my press outfit, my press show the next day. So I was kicked out of a changing room I was invited to. And um, it wasn't really until then that I understood, I mean, I had a mental breakdown, you know, it was, it was completely unmanageable. I didn't have any friends that had experienced that. Um, I wasn't friends with people in public eye or anything. I had no connections Apart from I was friends with Monroe and that was maybe three months after Monroe's... Monroe Bergdorf. Monroe Bergdorf. And that was three months after her L'Oreal incident. So she was the only person I knew that had been through something. And it completely shifts you and changes your whole idea of self and safety. And I'm really lucky that a friend told me straight away, you've got to get a therapy. Even if you think you're doing it all right, you've got to get a therapist straight away. And that's kind of when I realized that that wasn't a, the only moment I had to look back on, you know, and it's when I started investing in my mental health because I felt like I had to, you know. A hundred, a hundred percent, especially given every, every direction in which the United Kingdom's gone when it comes to trans issues and as someone who is becoming more and more prominent as a figure uh, who speaks with, and I don't, I don't mean for in a, in a way as if trans people are, or the trans community are a monolith, but I just mean that you are one of the more listened to and heard voices in the trans community. So I'm really, really glad that you've got someone to speak to. And, And while I imagine there was trauma around that incident, I also imagine it's been quite and this isn't like a trauma porn episode. I just want to talk about the great joys of living as you do, but it must be so traumatic to exist in the United Kingdom over the last six years. I feel traumatised just watching everything from the other side of the world and as a cis person, just like so disgusted, so mortified by how trans issues have become, I mean, globally, but it feels like almost especially in the United Kingdom for some reason, a way to just such a, a political weapon. Yeah. And I, I just wonder what that feels like for you. Yeah, I think, I mean, first it's like, it's changed a lot for me throughout the years because I've amassed more privilege, you know? So it felt mm-hmm. so different when I didn't, when this was all starting to happen, I didn't have economic stability, right? Right. And so the press was going wild and I was also trying to get jobs and also I had no money. And that feels very different to now when I have economic stability. You know, it's a lot easier to kind of switch off, I think, from the media when you can switch off to a flat that you're not worried about losing and to a job that you're not worried about losing. But I think that even with that, it's like, it's so weird. I was explaining this to my friend the other day. I said, it's so scary doing press again and interacting with a harmful media, right? I'm I'm, I'm having to constantly battle to them to not use this headline or not use that because you feel like you're both experiencing something on a personal level and on a systemic level. You're like, hold on a minute, this is personally hurting me. But also, wait, I'm resembling what's happening on a structural level with the press because they are just using you for political football. And we've seen that with the recent Tory leadership campaign where they just decided to all come out as anti-trans to get votes. And, And it's so disorientating because, I mean, you and I know from being friends and in community with queer and trans people that trans people really just want very basic things. So it's so Mm -hmm. odd when you see yourself being used as this theoretical goalpost because you're like, I just want to go to the shops safely. I just want to get my healthcare. I just want to get my housing. What is this? But I think England, it doesn't surprise me because England is so committed to sticking to its ways in so many different ways when it comes to like diversity, right? So it doesn't surprise me 
It's deeply unchic, but that makes sense for such a deep, <laughs> a deeply unchic country. Do you know what I mean? When have we ever seen the average British person be chic? So it makes sense, you know? <laughs> oh, I left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You had the right idea. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was such an unexpected, brilliant uh, <laughs> dose of shade. <laughs> Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now, save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know, you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Masterforce Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Masterforce tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. I think it's really wonderful that you are here to be able, like you're finding it within yourself to be able to speak uh, about this and reassure young people. And I, I would love to talk to you about your book, None of the Above, uh, because I feel like this is a book almost for the 20-year-old yeah. you or the 14-year-old yes. you. Yeah. This is a book that is supposed to make other people feel seen and heard and help them understand themselves as you've probably struggled to do until maybe more recently and you have the access of therapy you have the privilege you are able to access other people maybe more uh lived in this experience than some kids in some suburb that is all white and and all cis and so i think it's um really fucking brilliant and i'd love to ask you to tell us what the book is about yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the younger me because I moved back to my hometown, Bristol, which for people that are listening that are not in the UK, um, there's more than one city. We're not just all from London. And very Brist- far from London. And, Br- and Bristol's like kind of a farmer, West Country, hippie kind of town. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, I think, the hottest accent in the world. Like West Country, that's it. I my wish I still... falling off. I only have like a West Country accent when I proper get into it, but right. um, my, the twang's there. But I, when I moved back, God, every time I'd go to the shop, I wouldn't even look at the person. I'd just be like, I'm attracted to the voice. Then I'd look up and it's like some 65 year old man. And I'd be like, well, I guess I'm not ageist anymore. I want to suck him off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, You've moved home. I'm in time. This- Why? Um, there was lots of reasons. One was I was bored of work being my whole life. And I felt like um, in order to live a happy and healthy life, I had to decenter work. And it was hard to do that in London because as much as I loved all of my friends that I'd made in London throughout the nine years of working, 
they all kind of worked in the same industry as me. And as much as we hung out as friends, it was also like at an event or this or that. And I just lost all interest in that. And my friends from Bristol, who I've known since I was like 13, I love them to bits. And also not, they don't work in my industry. And that means that we are friends because we're friends. And when we hang out, they don't want to hear about my job. They want to be at the pub making jokes and laughing. And, and that was about building balance. Um, I also like kind of lost some of my housing in the beginning of the pandemic and couldn't afford to live on my own in London in a place that would feel nice and obviously could afford to live on my own in Bristol. And safe. Yeah, and safe. And also being near my mum. My mum lives 10 minutes down the road from me in Bristol. Everyone lives 10 minutes down the road from me in Bristol. <laughs> um, and it's just really nice for that. Um, but I also thought I was only going home for six months and I've been there for like two and a half years now and I'm just never coming back to London um, to live. I mean, never say never, but I really, I'm just loving being back. But the book, the book was important because I grew up in Bristol and I started wearing dresses in Bristol and I started being gender non-conforming in Bristol on a council estate, which for US listeners is like a housing project. And that was the most fundamental shift for me as a person to decide to do that in the environment that I was in. Because yeah, it was almost, it was very rarely seen or done. Uh, yeah. Especially not a person of colour. Exactly. And like, especially, I think to get out of it and be safe, like it's different now. I definitely think that we do see the girls on the estate more now. And, and we were always there, but it was just to do it safely is really, really hard. I mean, it wasn't safe, period, you know. And to go back now as an adult, I walked through all of the, my old streets, my old neighbourhoods, and to feel the shift of like shame not really existing was where I wanted to write the book from. I, you know, the book is kind of doing two things. It's looking back at things that were said to me and using those things to analyse about gender and the gender binary. But I also came back to Bristol, if I'm, okay, I'll be honest to you, um, to think about medically transitioning. And wow. the book is kind of asking, I've, you know, I, I used to have a, I have a tattoo on me that kind of symbolises the fact that I never wanted to fit in. I always wanted to look like gender non-conforming, to look like someone that was none of the above. And then the book kind of starts me in the doctor's office deciding that maybe I don't want to do that anymore and the question I'm asking is how do you reconcile with the past you that said I am a bearded cross-dresser and proud right I remember graffitiing that on a gay club when I was 17 to now being in an op- in a in a doctor's office trying to laser off the hair from your face and kind of reconciling with what happened in your life to to want to do that and what that means and that's kind of what the book is trying to do. It's it's not trying to educate anyone, really. It's trying to... I think the pandemic brought up a lot for my friends and it brought up a lot of stories of my friends behind the scenes talking about their transition. And I felt like one thing we've been robbed of as trans people creatively because of this oppression that we're facing in the UK is dangerous things published, things that we're not sure about, things that we feel risky And I just wanted to take the risk and write something that felt unsure, you know? And so this book was about your uncertainty as to what gender you wanted to physically embody? Or would you say non-binary? Were you you talking about switching to uh, a woman? It's basically saying that, it's asking the question, can you survive? visibly gender non-conforming, looking like, for lack of a better word, a man in a dress. You know, I'm really fine with saying that because I'm like, let's name what people see. Can you survive as that? Or do you have to make changes to yourself physically in order to to experience safety? Right, right, right. I think it's such an important conversation, Travis. Oh my God. It's such an important conversation. I feel like so many people are going through this right now where because everyone is... A, kicking up a fuss about they, them pronouns. And then also everyone mm-hmm. needs a box and everyone yes. makes you feel like at such a young age, you have to know exactly who you are mm-hmm. or any age you have to know exactly mm-hmm. who you are when we're all so transient. Um, 
it's really tricky, I think, for people to, like, I wonder what was it that made you think you wanted to transition to being, I take it, was it, was it to be seen as a woman? Who knows? I mean, would it have been a woman with like, she, like. Yeah, the book kind of, I mean, I thought it was that. And then I realized that like, my identity wouldn't have shifted. I'm still Travis. So was it just, well, that's what I mean, is it? It was was physically Where did that come from? Was it just to be able to pass so that you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be subjected to constant scrutiny and poking and prodding of what are you, what are you? Yeah, it would be to be open to a new scrutiny, that of womanhood, you know, women are scrutinized nonstop. (laughs) But it was to be, I think it was to be legible under a binary system. It was that I'm, I was like, I think I'm tired of being illegible even in the gender sense. Not that suddenly being a woman or read as a woman would not be an exhausting process. You know, misogyny obviously would still be there. It was, but it was the first hurdle of even being recognised as a gender. And luckily I feel like, you know, spoiler alert, the conclusion I reach is that that's not a life that I, that's not a reason for me to make a change. And that I needed to write the book to refine the power and kind of looking like a freak and being proud of being a freak. But I felt like the narrative for younger LGBTQ people was, okay, once you get to this point when you're older, suddenly you're always confident. You know, you had all these kind of confident non-binary people saying, I'm me and I'm proud, and I was one of them. And I guess I just wanted to write a book that was like, no girl, you're never too old to have a gender crisis. (laughs) And uh, I wanted to write out the gender crisis, you know, and how, you can talk about personal mental health. To bring it back to mental health, you can talk about all the self-care practices in the world, all the techniques you do, all the therapy. But at the end of the day, if you're living in a system that is constantly punishing you, it will catch up. And I think this was my catch-up moment. You know, I was turning 27 and I was like, I have been living as out as gender non-conforming since I was 14. And nothing- Was there even the language for that? Oh no, I was just, no, I was just calling myself a faggot. (laughs) I was just, I was just an old school faggot. Um, But you know, I think, what was it? I went to, of course, this is so cringy. I hate that my non-binary story is this, but I went to California when I was 17 Uh and I, and I met my first non-binary person. And of course, California, it was Berkeley, California. They were a bit more ahead of the curve. And I remember someone introduced themselves with them, they pronouns. And I was like, what the fuck? And I completely combated it. I remember I was so against it. I was like, that doesn't make sense. What are you talking about? You opt out. And the person was just smiling and looking at my outfit and me and was like, okay, girl, whatever. And then two weeks later, I was like, wait, so you just like decided to not, to not fuck with gender? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm hooked. But I was already doing it before, you know, I was. Yeah. I was messing, I remember cutting up my school uniform and, you know, making the trousers really tight and cropping the, the polo shirt, um, you know, because in UK schools, obviously, we're all in these uniforms and the comprehensive jumper I used to crop and, you know, flare out my trousers in the summer, loads of necklaces, eyeliner, I was doing it. I just, you know, to me, it was just being gay and it didn't feel right someone calling me a man, but I had no word, I had no language for it, of course. Um, yeah, because it's it's that you don't necessarily identify with any any of the gender stereotypes, or you identify with little parts of all of them. Yeah, or well, you know what? For real, is that I don't care, and I think that's what I realized. Like, I don't really care, but damn, everyone else does. And and I think that was the big shift for me is that I had such a positive experience in my family home, which I know I'm so lucky for. So in that, beautiful. And that my mum just didn't even mention it. She was like, you look good. Do you want this? Do you want that? And it wasn't until I got to secondary school or high school um, that everyone started caring. And I was like, oh, this is gender. And that's why I think it's like so weird to place all the onus on our own personal discovery as if gender is like a solo project and as if it's not like a communal one, right? We, I, I genuinely think I only realized I was trans because of other people. Before then, I was just a happy kid. You know, my mum was just giving me nail varnish, giving me heels, saying, you're just Travis. And then you go to school and they're like, what is this boy doing? Why is this boy doing this? This boy can't do this. This boy won't do this. And then the mental health starts to happen and then you start to have to struggle. But 
And that's with everything, by the way. Like yeah, we don't of know we don't know what race is when we're babies. We don't know about our bodies like being wrong or right. We just think our body is our body and we like touching and like chewing like every <laughs> part of ourselves. You know, like we don't we don't judge each other on the way that we look. We don't care about hairlines or hairstyles. Mm-hmm. We're so great. We're so great when we're mm-hmm. babies. And then everything systemically feeds us with what you should and shouldn't be. And all of that is um, as I've said a billion times, I'm sure on this podcast, all of that is based in systemic white colonizing patriarchy and and capitalism, you know? Right. And Always I feel having like, to buy more and more things that help you achieve these gender stereotypes, these aesthetic stereotypes. Yeah. And then I feel like adulthood is just like doing the long process of claiming yourself back from all of that saying actually like I'm going to do the work to choose myself over and over again over these standards I'm going to choose like my autonomy over these conditions and that's what it was growing up you know in a working class neighborhood and being me it was like I'm going to make the choice every day that despite safety despite you know all these things I'm more important than all of those stuff you know authenticity will like get me through it. it it did how old were you when you sort of realized, no, oh, that doesn't really suit me, you know, about the ways that you were being not raised by your family, but, but, cause I mean, I feel like so many people I know feel this way where we just kind of go along with it because we can't be bothered. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. But like, like, like I personally don't care what anyone thinks of me or of, of what they, how they assess my gender, et cetera. Um, I, I'm not personally interested, but I know that there's so much about being a, a being a, a woman that I've never really identified with emotionally, mm. where I've just mm. gone, these things don't make sense to me because they're so mm. arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. It's such arbitrary nonsense of like, girls do this, boys do that. And because mm. I kind of exist very like, and I think most, I think most people in the world, if we really fundamentally got to who we are when we're not being constantly targeted with ads and magazines, we're probably a bit of both. We're yeah. all a bit of both. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I think it's really important to be able to own that conversation, not have people be frustrated with you because mm. people do get frustrated with you because mm. they want you to, they f- treat you as though you're inconveniencing them and that you have to pick a side because they don't know what to do with you. But you're not asking them to do anything with you. Just, uh, you're just asking them to leave you alone. Right, right. And I feel like sometimes the frustration comes because I sometimes feel a sense of like, well, if you can do it, why can't I just, you know, it's like this whole thing of famous right-wing presenters that don't need a name going, well, if they identify as this, they can be a penguin. And, you know, people laugh at all of that. But I think underneath that is a frustration of like, hold on, if you get to have freedom, why can't I? And they think of all the sacrifices that they might have made to gender. I genuinely think, uh, there's a man that used to come to all of my shows when I was touring more. And he used to just stand by the the edge of the crowd. And I'm not to assume he's straight, but I did look at his shoes and I I gathered that he might be straight. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, he used to just stand there and, and, and not bother saying anything until about seven shows in, he was there with, who I later learned with his wife and he showed me his nails and they were bright green and his wife goes, you did this. And I said, what do you mean? And they were like, oh, he's been coming to your shows and now he feels he can paint his nails. And I felt really happy at first. I was like, oh, look at this. Like, this is what gender non-conforming people can bring. And then she said, the saddest thing I think I've heard in so long, she goes, We've been married for six years and we've been discussing in bed for six years whether or not he's allowed to paint his nails. And then now we've finally decided he's allowed. I said, what interesting language. We've decided, we've been discussing it for six years. And I said, you know, there was a response to judge. And then I said, doesn't that show what we're losing to gender? The mourning that everyone is doing and that actually trans people represent this freedom of choice that of course then gets people uncomfortable because there they are in their lives making all these sacrifices. Men not being allowed to talk about their feelings, having to exist within these kind of incredibly toxic stereotypes. Right. Right. This wife saying that your love is conditional and you're appeasing to the binary. We've had to discuss, you know, your choice to paint your nails for six years. I said, girl, wait until he gets acrylics. You know, we're not even started yet. And, and then, <laughs> you know, I thought this really shows that in trans people is a hope. 
but it's a hope that scares people, you know, and that's what I, and you know, who knows, but that's what I've had to tell myself to make sense of, you know, all of the attention we get for just walking outside in the like, future. Well, we saw it even after the Me Too movement, right? There was this huge anti-Me Too movement that came from older women. Mm. Mm. And it was really fascinating. A really strong one came out of France, we saw mostly, but but everywhere this uh, backlash and it was really hard to unpack what would prompt women who lived in a time where there was even less language, even less opening, even less protection than we have now, fighting us telling the stories of the way in which we live. People saying it's not rape, it's just bad sex and you're talking about it too much and we're making people feel more traumatised than they should be and if you don't think about it as a trauma, then you won't be traumatised. And for so many of us, it's not fair of any of us to categorise where any of their brains are at, but it just felt like, fuck, are you just being confronted now with the fact that you've been assaulted maybe more than once, most likely statistically more than once? And you don't want to think about that as assault. You don't want to think about that as you're a victim of something. So you'd rather just shut down everyone else who's challenging the status quo because you never felt like you were allowed to. It reminds me so much of that. that it's just so much fear. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. non-binary feel like to you talk to me about that does it feel like anything does it feel like everything does it just you just feel free you know I can't know because I've always just been me and I use Mm. non-binary as like a word you know I'm I'm sometimes the worst trans person to do these talks because no I know I know I use the word because I just am like whatever like I'm the bad trans that kind of doesn't really believe in all the words anyway you know and it's just like I love that yeah I'm like this is me in this century using this word because it's the language and 40 years ago you said due to the fail in language that's why you use these terms these pronouns etc but they're not things that necessarily dictate who you are they don't with you yeah and I feel like for some people non-binary really empowers them and I love that and for me it's like shorthand um but what I guess it feels like to, you know, not be a man or a woman is it feels like a choice to me. It feels like a conscious, you know, for some people it's an innate thing. For me, it was like, actually, like, this choice is going to bring me more joy. This choice to, like, push back against the assertion that I'm a man is going to bring me joy. And I won't lie, like, it sounds kind of like cliche. It also feels really powerful. Like, I feel really, like, it feels like you're not allowed to say the word empowered anymore because it's just used all the time. But I do feel really fucking empowered. Like, I feel like an empowered person because all the odds were that I wouldn't be able to choose this and I wouldn't be able to do this. And every day I walk out in fabulous dresses and makeup despite every attention I get. And it might just be for this one... The other day it was so fun. Me and my friend, we were actually in Greece and um, what well, was a local, I'm sure it was been on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And we were in Greece and this yeah. kid just came up to us and they were so shy and they went, I just want to say you both look amazing. And, you know, we got shouted at loads that day. Cabs wouldn't pick us up. They would drive off. But that one comment from that one kid genuinely just made me be like, oh, of course, like this is magic. And this kid is now thinking about us when they go home being like, wow, I just saw these two people that 
broke some expectations. And I, I think that's magic, you know? I also think what's extra magical about yourself and Alok is that you aren't... Uh, and obviously like anyone who exists within anything outside of what is the perfect uh, respectable binary blah 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 um, is the fact that you and Alok are non-white yeah and you don't come from upper class backgrounds and I think that's something that I know you take to heart as the fact that it's important for people to see someone from your background your economic background and the fact that I don't know how you would describe that if that's more kind of working class because you grew up in an estate I hate all of the names yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. the names for everything but um that's where I was as well and uh and also being someone who is of color I don't know your exact heritage my mum's African-American and Filipina Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's a stunning mix. I know, I feel like... Oh, for the fuck's food, sake, Travis. I know, and the food's always so good, you know? Oh, shit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's ideal. Um, anyway, we we see a lot of these conversations, and it's, it's, it's changing now, but a lot of the early queer and trans and gender-fluid conversations were all coming out of, like, very thin, very white... Yeah. Uh, and and like very well connected and well educated yes. and this yeah. that and the other not to say you're not well educated you know what I mean I'm just saying I'm not, that now we're I'm starting not to babes. see more <laughs> <laughs> nor am I babe. <laughs> um, and so it's so great to be able to see more people who represent more people yeah I think well, this is be it. able to be able to speak about this and still share that same liberty because there is a certain there's a modicum more of safety when you exist in certain kind of levels of quote unquote high society that maybe someone living, having to walk through a council estate in a dress doesn't have because it's a less protected. So there is something quite camp and much more kind of queer friendly around the like, which is so funny, why it's so funny to watch the Tories try and use trans people and queerness Mm -hmm. as their kind of, as as their gun, uh, because there's so much more safety within these kind of upper class communities. Yeah. And so it's it's amazing what you're doing to be able to try to help through your own existence and your own kind of joyous rebellion, liberate the kids who don't exist in those safe spaces to make those spaces more safe yeah. for them. And, 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 you know, this is it, because it's like the violence exists in all spaces just in different ways. And it's like, for me, one thing, you know, I'm, I'm not working class anymore. Or I'm from, a, I don't know, all those words. But, you know, I'm, I was from a dirt... You don't dirt, live in that, yeah. Yeah, but I was from a dirt poor background for a very long time in my life. Mm. And one thing I think I learned from being poor and no longer being poor is that when you're poor, you don't have, t- you don't have time and you think that choice is reserved for those that are rich and that you have to kind of live a life that is dictated by others' time, your jobs, your shifts, all of that. And I think that plays into non-binary and this idea of non-binary in quite an interesting way, because I think people think it's a luxury to not be male or female. It's like, well, you have time to think about all of this. You have time to make these choices. You have time to go and read on gender. And in some ways that's true. You know, it's definitely more prevalent in university spaces. But when we look at history and we look at the kinds of words people are using, in working class communities at the time, there was gender non-conforming people. We just have to look for a different lens. And even when we look at like street queens like Marsha P and Sylvia Rivera, who I know have now mm-hmm. been brought up as this kind of huge emblem for the community. When you look at their history and the words they were using to describe themselves, they weren't just calling themselves women. They were also calling themselves drag queens, sissies, cross-dressers, street queens, all of this. Their identities were much more complicated than maybe a 2020 lens has put on them. And so they were working class street girls. And that's who I saw growing up on the council. So I remember there was a lady called Sapphire in Bristol. And Sapphire was just Sapphire. No one called her a woman, a man, trans. She was Sapphire. But she was an assigned male at birth person walking around in a dress around the estate. Now, in a middle class space, I feel like the emphasis is always on the words and how you describe yourself and that brings your validity. But for Sapphire, the validity was from existing and doing. And I think that why I'm so passionate about different class of voices and different race of voices in the UK speaking about transness is we're going to experience it different. We're going to have different priorities. We're going to have different 
communication styles. Maybe I won't judge my acceptance of my family based on if they get all the language right or my pronouns right. But I will judge it on if they include me in grace at the dinner table or if they offer to still let me feed my plate to my grandmother for food. You know, the metrics of respect is different in different communities. And so when we're basing all of our acceptance off of white parameters, sorry, I'm going on a rant, but I feel like... No, please, this is great. I feel like when we're basing respect and acceptance and equality on white parameters, that doesn't always fit with what other people are What do you define as the white parameters? I feel like white acceptance in like a liberal way for the LGBTQ community looks like, you know, we've got our pronouns and our email signatures. We've got a huge win. Everyone at the office is wearing little stickers that have our pronouns. We've got Mm -hmm. a huge win. Our mum understands what the acronym stands for. And all of this is not to discredit that. But when you're in a working class existence, I often think about what you have. Everything's about efficiency and functionality because you're trying to get work and then you're trying to socialise. You're not, you don't have time. So you're looking for more substantial stuff in terms of can I get to my job and work at my job and be respected there safely? Can I get on public transport okay? Can I get home to my family and still go to the family events and be looked after? If I'm started out on the street, will other people on the street respect me enough to stand up for me? Right? That was the one thing I lost when I started looking visibly queer. In the estate, it's all based off of family respect and stuff. And I had that before I started looking visibly queer. So if anyone would start on me, someone would protect me because I'm from this postcode or this area code. And when I started looking visibly gender non-conforming, all the loyalties to the area code were gone because I was a faggot. And so I don't really care now if the person is knowing my pronouns. I care if they're going to protect me on the street. The, the, I just think the, the goals and, sh- and bars are different because... I don't know if an email pronoun is going to, pronoun stickers are going to save us, but I do think trans people being able to get jobs will save us. Trans people being able to get healthcare and housing, that's going to be the thing, you know? And I think we have to maybe stop as a community focusing on nitpicking every single little thing that someone does and instead be like, what is going to improve our quality of life as a community? Working class people know one thing, and that is how we all have to live together in close proximities, whether you all are the same or not. And I think something gets lost in a middle class liberal ground where they go, you're not thinking the exact same thing as me. You're out, you're out, you're out. But working class people know how to organize across communal grounds. And that's what I want to push for in a trans conversation, you know. I fucking love you so much. I like, I honestly, like whenever I hear you speak is some of the only times I ever feel sane because this is exactly how I feel. And I, 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 and with so many forms of, of, uh, activism, as soon as it gets kind of dragged into academia, so like feminist language, language, language around race discourse, uh, language around, um, gender, all of these things, as soon as they start becoming the kind of cognitive, cognitive dissonance and diasporas and all of these different words that I know for a fact, me growing up, I wouldn't know what the fuck that was. I I can barely grasp some of the academic language now. It's so ostracizing that then it means that the vast majority of people, the ones who need it the most, feel completely left out and bamboozled by the language that impacts them more than anyone because they're living in places that aren't economically served, that aren't in the lens of, you know, if something happens to someone in London, people around the world are more likely to hear about it. If something happens in Bristol or Hull or anywhere like you know no one no one cares no one thinks about the people in the suburbs and those are the kids who most need the guidance and they get completely shut out and then the ease with which you get called an idiot or a bigot if you just don't know the perfect language versus how you actually behave towards people ends up shutting people out before they get a chance because they feel like you've taken away I'm not I'm probably going to get dragged and this will be twisted out of context, but I feel like if we take away people's humanity because of what they didn't understand on an academic level, then they are less likely to reach out to try to understand your humanity. And I feel like what you do with your work is you are trying to call people in and see you as the whole human rather than the box to tick. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's like, I love academia. I love reading that shit. Yeah, but it's about, so do I. I respect it, but like, come on, democratize that information. Yes, it's about both and... And it's about like, this can exist at the same time as this. But also it's about, I think, 
I don't know what's going on as much in the States. I do obviously peripheral, but I obviously am more clued into the UK. And we're clued in, we're, we're buckling up for some really harsh economic times that are not going to affect people like me and you first. They're going to affect so many other mm. people. And we've got to decide... You've got old ladies taking the bus in England yeah. all day so that they don't have to like use any of their appliances in their exactly. house because they can't afford electricity, heating of water exactly. or, or like um, heating their house. Like people in their 80s yeah. spending all day going round and round on buses because it's warm yeah. so that they don't have to pay any energy bills at home. That's what's happening in the United Kingdom yes. right now for anyone it's, else around the world. Exactly. And we've not got a good opposition. You know, our politics are fucked and we've got to decide our priorities in terms of helping other people. And I think we have to leave some of our egos at the door and decide to focus on some action. And and that means that I'm going to be around people that might not know how to explain my gender, but I think that there's some actions that are more important than that for me. And it's about, um, you know, I moved back home and I moved back to my neighbourhood and I have a neighbour for sure, when we first started hanging out, I'm, I'm absolutely positive, did not like me and did not respect me and, you know, would get the cross out of their, their chest uh, necklace and show it to me every time I walked past in a dress. And I smiled and nodded and, and then she got COVID and um, I sent around some food. I just said, hey, here's some food on the doorstep. What's, what's good? And, you know, I'm not saying everyone needs to be nice to everyone that's mean, but I think it's about checking in with what's really hurting you. I wasn't in danger. I knew I wasn't. I had a lock between my door and I sat around some food. She sent a thank you note. We're not best of friends right now, but her electricity was down. You know, the other day I helped her out. We're talking. We talked about the elections. We're talking about the stuff. And if I stopped at the initial distrust of each other, we wouldn't get there. But we live together. We're in community together. And I just think that our politics are going to a place where we have to decide to be invested in our local community. And that will mean being invested in people beyond just who we think are good and bad, you know? A hundred, 100 billion percent. I wish it wouldn't be an annoying sound for me to clap right now because <laughs> I love what you're saying so much. And it does require labour and it does require, you know, extra empathy on your part. And that is fucking annoying and it is upsetting for me to even hear about. But at the same time, as a fucking Pakistani queer kid who grew up in England in the 90s where Pakistani people were subjected to horrors and that's before 9-11 where after that it became super unsafe to walk anywhere. It's not at the same level that you have experienced in your life, but I definitely know that the that we were forced to be able to... And it was so frustrating, but make space for the fact that people are products of their environment. They are products of the fear that they have been indoctrinated with. They wouldn't hate you if they knew you. And so you're going to have to give them that fucking chance to get to know you and find a way in. And it's, it's really unfair, but it's also, do we have a, do we have an alternative plan to that? Do we have a plan B? Because the other plan isn't working and we can see in our politics, it's sending people to the center or sending, sending people all the way to the other side. And that shouldn't be how it is, but that is how it is because we are tribal beings. And if you ostracize people from the tribe, another tribe will take them in. And I try and explain this all the time. And I get told that I'm both sidesing or this, that, and the other. I'm not doing any of that. I'm purely saying as a pragmatic, practical approach to actual diversity, to actual inclusion, to human beings understanding what's similar between us rather than what our differences are, we are going to have to do that infuriating emotional labor because these people are being in, like pr- truly like soaked in fear around us because by a government that wants us to look at each other rather than at them. Mm-hmm. Exactly that. Exactly that. They're all trying to create diversion tactics and they are always using minorities and especially now trans people. I'm the most suspicious. The second I hear the trans conversation come up, yeah. I know immediately, oh my God, what are you hiding? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they know that everyone's going to look because trans people look fucking fabulous. <laughs> exactly. It's very clever. Like it's, it's, the, it's why it's been the one. It's like the shiniest, most beautiful. Exactly. <laughs> the chicest group. Exactly. Of course everyone's going to look. You know what I mean? I, uh, I think it's a really important conversation that a lot of people don't have um, the bravery to speak about because 
I imagine you sometimes get pushed back from your own community oh, for encouraging. Of course, of course. But you know, I think. Do I you think, get Do you get quite a lot of pushback when yeah. you exp- when you express? Because is 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 your pragmatic approach deemed as kind of tolerance? Too um, much tolerance. You know, I don't really. I'll be honest. Um, this is bad. But I don't look, so I don't know. Unless someone tells me to my face, or like tells me, texts me a friend. I don't really look, so I don't really know. Um, you know, I get some comments and stuff, but I think that the the internet has shifted in the last two years, where it's past the point of like a utility of having engaging conversations. Um, and so I'm more interested when someone sends me like an email or a long message and then I'll listen. And sometimes I'm wrong. A lot of the time I'm wrong. So like sometimes it's worthwhile to listen, but I think I've had to block out a lot of the like noise from people and just be like, I actually can't live a life where one, people can't change. And two, I can't be wrong and that be okay. And three, that I'm always in the position of either victim or perpetrator. I have to live a life where I can be both those things and also be wrong and right. And so I just don't trust anyone that doesn't allow that. And so if I can... Well, it's, it's incredibly true to a non-conforming person that you also don't... You don't want to be caught in the cult of gender and you also don't want to be caught in the cult of, I don't know, like political, Pure, ideological expression yeah. and puritanical yeah. and, and moral yeah. sainthood and all these different things. It makes complete sense. And, and I also find it quite ridiculous that a community that are so hell-bent on like announcing that they are allies for or that they are members of uh, non-conforming when it comes to gender feel the need that everyone has to have this terrifying level of conformity to every single yeah, and of course it's sticking like- point of our group. And of course, it's always the loudest and there's tons of people offline. And I think more and more people are realizing that online was creating this really polarizing space. And I just only surround myself with people that can be both good and bad and know that about themselves. And so I don't really listen to any of that other shit, you know. That's great. Can I ask a question about your mum? So were you mostly raised by your mum? Yeah, only raised by my mum. Only raised by your mum. And so coming from two backgrounds, not just one that are not super historically tolerant of queer people. I mean, historically, actually, uh, a lot of these cultures probably were, but coming from uh, African-American background and coming from, did you say Filipino? Filipino, yeah. Yeah. How did your mum get so progressive that even back then she just knew to allow you to be you when when she would have been pressured maybe by her extended family to force you into a binary Mm -hmm. I think the Alabanzas have a long gay history. <laughs> um, not to not to out them all, but I mean, she's also from San Francisco. That probably helps. Um, oh, that's nice. That helps. I think you but know. That's fucking amazing. Like to yeah. hear any parent from that generation, well, yeah, but especially anyone who's like from an ethnic minority. She's fucking incredible. She's nearly seventy, and um, I think. Do you know what it is? I, I think I'd have to speak to her about it, but the times that I've been here is that she just wanted to be a mum so bad and she didn't always know that she could be a mum. And so when she got her two kids, she just really was like, I, this was never meant to happen, so I'm just going to love them. I, I really think that was her vibe. And who knows? I think also it helps that it was never really a surprise that I was going to be queer. And so she probably also had a lot of time before I realised to like do her work on it and whatever. Um, but it's so lovely that her work was on herself rather than her work was on you. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Line. I also think that, you know, I think deep down, you know, I'm the youngest of two. She has an old, I've got an older brother who's great, but like super, super straight and super like, you know, quite, I, I love him, but I hope he doesn't mind me saying he's very boring in the best way, stable. <laughs> um, and she probably was like, I mean, damn, thank God I've got someone throwing some fucking colour in the mix. <laughs> but um, also she's... <laughs> She's camp. My mum is very, very camp. And she obviously, like, comes from San Francisco, which is, you know, I'm sure she was basically a fag hag in her time. And now she's like, great, I've got this little one I can, you know, uh, dress up. She's a very fashionable woman and, and she loves just sharing clothes with me now. So I think lose a son, gain a daughter, that kind of binary thinking probably crossed it, you know? <laughs> What advice would you have to any parent who might be listening to this? Because I think looking at having kids the way that 
she did of I'm so lucky. Everyone's lucky. Yeah. Everyone's lucky if you're ever able to conceive and yeah. like have that kind of be able to make a little person and then be lucky enough that person survives long enough that you can raise that little person. It is such a privilege and you should treat it as in exactly the way that your mother did as like, I'm just going to embrace and love yeah. this baby no matter what, because I'm so glad that they're here. Yeah. What advice do you have for parents listening to this? Maybe they've got a one-year-old, they have no idea who they're going to be. I would say that I categorically don't think I would have the life, the work or the creativity that I have right now if I had to spend so much time unlearning all of my parents' shame. I genuinely think that I had a head start in life. In so many ways, you could look at my life and go, this, this and this, oppressed this and this. I think I had such a head start in life because my parents loved me. And wouldn't you want to give your kid that like, shouldn't be a head start, but that head start so that they don't have to spend ages working through stuff. Um, I had so much confidence as a kid. You know, all the odds were saying that I couldn't be an artist doing these things. And I never knew any of those odds because I just had a mum that really made me feel like I could do everything. And so I think that's a no-brainer. I mean, I don't know because I'm not a parent, but it feels like a no-brainer that you'd want your kid to have that belief in themselves. They're going to be, I, I, I always think, I said this to my mom, I was like, I was always going to be stopped by multiple things in the world. But isn't it great that for ages I just had a bliss of like not feeling like that was a, a thing, you know, not feeling like that was an object. Um, and I also, you know, not that I think trans people need to exist to give something to someone else, but I do think having trans people in my life and our life is a blessing. And so to see your kid as the blessing that they're going to teach you something. I know I've taught my mum stuff, you know, about gender, about things, just from existing. Oh my God, so much of you what, know? especially specifically trans women have taught me and and gender non-conforming people about my own right to liberty as to how mm. I live. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Has just been... It's been, it's changed everything. Mm -hmm. The way I should feel about my body, the way I should feel about my fucking height, the way I should mm. feel about my broad shoulders or my attitude or the fact that I don't want to be little and quiet and I, I want to be authoritative. The most permission I have ever felt to be me has come from trans and gender non-conforming people. Right. right. And I feel like we don't exist for that purpose, but it's a side effect of our existence. And so a parent should be like, damn, right? I'm, I'm going to be lucky. I say this to, I don't think I want kids, but who knows I'm young. But like, I always say the biggest risk is I don't want a straight kid. That's, I need to start asking, hey, any straight listeners, can you tell me how am I going to love my straight kid unconditionally? That's, <laughs> that's the advice I need to tune in on. I would like to know how I can the, feel. Because the question is as preposterous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It exactly. shows exactly how preposterous the question of how will I love my child yeah. based on their identity it works both ways. It's fucking ridiculous either way. Yeah. Oh, Travis, you're so great. And I want everyone to go out and read mm. none of the above. And I want everyone to follow your work and go and see your art. So before you go, I would love to ask you, Travis Alabanza, what do you weigh? I weigh my earned autonomy. Gorgeous. Well, I love you very much. Thank and I you hope so you much come out this. to America to visit yes. me soon, or I'll come to England and find you. Yeah. And uh, I'll see you really soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Aaron Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code IWAY. Lastly, over at IWAY, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iwaypodcast at gmail.com. And now... We would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. I weigh the love of my two young nieces who admire me so much without question. I weigh my relationship with my family. I weigh my journey uh, into womanhood as a transgender woman. I weigh my close 
friends who are chosen family. I weigh my ability to create great art, and I weigh my spirituality and the love of art. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.